You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 106, Arms Race on Lake Champlain. Today I'm going to step away from New York City again to take a look at events on Lake Champlain. At the same time, the Howe brothers in New York were using their massive military to push Washington out of the city, Generals Carleton and Burgoyne were trying to push southward from Canada. We last looked at Canada in episode 95 when General Carleton's troops pushed the last of the Continental Army out of Canada and into Lake Champlain in upstate New York. The remains of the Patriots' northern army fell back to Fort Ticonderoga. For the British in Canada, everything seemed to be going well that spring. Burgoyne had a late arrival in May 1776, but by the end of June, the British had pushed the Americans out of Canada entirely. Burgoyne had used the 8,000 or so British and German forces that he brought with him from Britain. With the combined local militia and Indians and troops already in Canada, he had a force of about eleven to 12,000 men. Following the victory in Canada, Carleton and Burgoyne's disagreement became more apparent. Clearly, according to Rank and Lord Germain's express orders, Carleton retained command. Burgoyne would obey orders, but, as most top subordinates did at the time, made clear to anyone who would listen that Carleton was holding him back. He could lead the forces to victory if only General Carleton did not hold his reins so tightly. Burgoyne, remember, had left Boston in the fall of 1775 to return home and convince the king and ministry that he knew how to win the war. He had even drafted a memo for the ministry entitled Thoughts for Conducting the War from the Side of Canada. And there's a quote to the original document on my blog if you want to take a look at it. Burgoyne planned to lead his military force up the St. Lawrence River to break the siege of Quebec and free General Carleton. From there, his men would move down Lake Champlain and retake Fort Ticonderoga. Next, they would move down the Hudson River, eventually linking up with General Howe's army that would be moving up the river from New York City. He even made a bet with a friend in London that he would be back victorious by Christmas 1777. Now, there was nothing particularly new or original about this plan. The ministry had been planning to use the Hudson River to cut off New England since the war began. Burgoyne's memo added far more details on exactly what troops should be used and why. That essentially is what the ministry adopted as its plan, but with one alteration. General Carleton, not Burgoyne, would command the army after it reached Quebec. General Carleton could not easily move his British fleet on the St. Lawrence River to take Lake Champlain. He would have to disassemble his ships, carry them up the rapids, then reassemble them at St. John before he could sail into the lake, or, in the alternative, build new ships at St. John and carry over the armaments that were needed. Either option, though, would take months. Burgoyne thought they should continue to press their advantage. The British had a clear military superiority and had the Continentals on the run. With the cooperation of the local Indians, 
the British could move overland to Fort Ticonderoga and bypass the rebel fleet commanded by General Arnold that was on the lake. Burgoyne also suggested moving further upriver to Lake Ontario and marching on the Americans from the west through New York State. Carleton, however, thought these plans were too risky. He preferred the safer option of building a fleet to recapture the lake, then sailing down the lake to Fort Ticonderoga and capturing the fort. It was undoubtedly a safer option, but it meant the British could not begin moving until fall. That gave the rebels time to build up their defenses on the lake and at the fort. Even if the British could take the fort in the fall, that almost certainly meant pausing again for the winter and not starting down the Hudson until the spring of 1777 at the earliest. General Carleton also used General Howe's approach by trying to reconcile with the rebels after capturing Canada. He released most of his prisoners, including Daniel Morgan, the future general. He issued pardons liberally to Canadians and made every effort to make sure the locals were happy and could put all the recent unpleasantness behind them. Burgoyne quickly grew frustrated at waiting. In addition to a host of other reasons for wanting to see his work through to a quick ending, he had left his sick wife in London. He had hoped he could get back to care for her. Sadly, as he sat in Canada all summer, waiting for things to happen, he learned that his wife had died in June. Another very strong argument against waiting was smallpox. The disease had ravaged both armies during the war and had been particularly destructive in Canada. Now, I know I've talked about the ravages of disease before, but it's hard to underestimate its importance. More than 90% of the military deaths during the Revolution came from disease. Smallpox, typhus, typhoid fever, malaria, and dysentery killed thousands in Canada alone. Having soldiers sitting around all summer would likely kill more of them than sending them into battle. Unlike the Continentals, who could always find more and more men to replace the fallen, the British had to spend far more time and expense to import fresh troops from across the ocean. Burgoyne occupied his time by keeping up a correspondence with Secretary of State Lord Germain in London. Germain already had a bad opinion of Carleton, so he readily listened and supported Burgoyne's frustration over Carleton's lack of action. When the king proposed awarding Carleton the Order of the Bath, Germain tried, unsuccessfully, to prevent it. Although Carleton had other friends in high places which protected him, Germain would look for any reason to recall Carleton and promote Burgoyne. During that summer, Lord Germain issued orders to give Burgoyne an independent command of an army in New York, while he left Carleton to remain in command in Canada. But those orders, mostly due to logistical problems, did not reach Canada until 1777. So for the remainder of the year, Carleton ran the show, and Burgoyne sat around impatiently waiting for something to change. On the Patriot side, fear of an imminent British attack loomed over everything. Congress decided to change the leadership in hopes of finding someone who could whip the American army into shape and hold off any invasion into New York. Once the British had pushed the Patriots out of Canada following the Battle of Three Rivers, Congress shipped General Sullivan back to New York City in time to be captured at the Battle of Brooklyn. 
General Wooster returned to Connecticut and would resign his commission a few months later. In their place, Congress sent General Horatio Gates. Although Gates was one of the original generals that Congress appointed back in the summer of 1775, I haven't had much to say about him so far, as he hadn't really done much. Gates was British-born in 1727 to commoner parents. Despite his low birth, he somehow obtained a lieutenant's commission as a young man and served in Germany during the War of Austrian Succession. He must have served well, as he received a wartime promotion to captain, despite the fact that there was no way he had the money to pay for such a commission. After the war, Gates sold his commission in the regular army and moved to New York. The sale of his commission gave him enough money to establish a new life for himself. When General Braddock came to America in 1755 to fight the French and Indian War, Gates joined the expedition to Fort Pitt, along with all the other kids who would grow up to be famous, Thomas Gage, Charles Lee, Daniel Morgan, Daniel Boone, and George Washington. Gates was wounded at the Battle of the Monongahela, but recovered and returned to service. He continued to serve as a regular officer in the Seven Years' War, fighting in both North America and the West Indies. By the end of the war, Gates had risen to the rank of major. In 1769, he sold his major's commission and purchased a small plantation in Virginia. There, he renewed his friendship with fellow plantation owner George Washington. In 1775, when Congress appointed Washington as commander-in-chief, he requested that Gates also be named a general in the new Continental Army. Gates became the Army's first adjutant general. While Gates did well at his job, it was mostly paperwork, not the sort of thing that gets you much glory. As an experienced field officer, Gates pushed for an independent command. In May 1776, after Washington had moved the bulk of the Continental Army from Boston to New York, Congress promoted Gates to Major General, and in June it assigned him the independent command of the Northern Army. Unfortunately for Gates, his independent command was not quite as independent as he had hoped. General Schuyler, his senior, remained in overall command of the region. In the past, Congress had bypassed General Schuyler by leaving him in overall command of forces in upstate New York, but left other generals, first General Montgomery, then Wooster, then Thomas, then Sullivan, in charge of the forces that were engaged in actual combat in Canada. To get his promotion, Gates had gone to Philadelphia to lobby for the independent command. In doing so, he heavily criticized Schuyler's performance as the commander. His lobbying paid off when Congress promoted Gates to Major General and gave him command of the Continental Army in Canada. The problem was that by the time Gates arrived in upstate New York, the Patriot forces in Canada had already retreated back to New York. Once there, the army fell under the authority of General Schuyler. As a result, Gates effectively became Schuyler's second-in-command. Gates was, of course, upset that his independent command had now become subordinate to General Schuyler's. He immediately began a letter-writing campaign to friends in Congress to undercut Schuyler's reputation with the apparent intent of having Schuyler relieved so that he could take command himself. The two men began bickering over just about everything. 
and divided the politicians as well as the army into Team Schuyler and Team Gates. New England politicians tended to favor Gates based on his military experience with the regular army. New Yorkers tended to favor Schuyler, who had the senior rank and experience in the region. Amazingly, General Benedict Arnold, who typically got along with no one, seemed to have a pretty good working relationship with both men. Unfortunately, his failure to pick a side would cause him problems down the road. But for now, on this one issue at least, Arnold was often the voice of diplomacy and reason. Although he was an army general, Arnold had made himself the naval commander of Lake Champlain. He commanded a few large ships, the Enterprise and the Liberty, which he had captured right after the fall of Fort Ticonderoga. He also had the Royal Savage, which General Montgomery had captured after the fall of St. John. His troops were still building the Revenge near Ticonderoga. He had four large row galley ships, the Washington, Congress, Trumbull, and Gates, as well as a smaller one, the Lee. Then he had eight smaller gondolas. All of these smaller ships had mounted cannon and would certainly harass and threaten any British ships that moved onto the lake. With the British pause at the Canadian border causing a lull in fighting during the summer, the Northern Army took some time to take care of some delayed business. In late July, it held courts marshals for Colonel Bedell and Major Butterfield, the two officers who had behaved so poorly at the Battle of Cedars back in May. Both men were found guilty and cashiered. That same month, the court-martial of Moses Hazen threatened to disrupt the entire army. Now, you may recall, Hazen was a local Canadian. He had tried to play both sides after the Patriots had invaded Canada, but after the British had arrested him and he escaped, he decided to stick with the Patriots. He received a commission as colonel and raised a Patriot regiment from among his fellow Canadians. For some time, General Arnold seemed to have a good opinion of Hazen. That changed after the Battle of the Cedars, where Arnold thought Hazen was not aggressive enough, possibly even a coward. Worse, Hazen disobeyed Arnold's orders to destroy the property of some who had cooperated with the British and Indian attack on the Cedars. Hazen believed that such destruction might have created more enemies for the army than it could handle. But the issue that led to the court-martial was Hazen's refusal to accept property that Arnold had sent to his care after the retreat from Montreal. Arnold had promised Montreal merchants on his personal honor that they would receive payment for their property, which the army needed. Arnold had an officer carry the property to Hazen, who refused to accept it. The officer ended up leaving all the supplies by the side of the river, where soldiers looted and took what they wanted. Arnold was livid at this insubordination. Congress had left Arnold on the hook for stuff like this before. He would feel honor-bound to repay the merchants, but would not get reimbursement from Congress if he could not account for the property. It was also another example of Arnold's subordinate officers simply ignoring his orders. Arnold attempted to impanel a court-martial against Hazen in early July. Hazen protested to General Gates, who ordered Arnold not to proceed. Arnold had apparently selected all the officers on the court-martial himself, 
and had selected some junior officers, even though Colonel Hazen had the right to be judged by field officers, that is, major or higher. Gates told Arnold to cut it out, but allowed a proper court-martial to be impaneled a few days later to hear charges against Hazen for neglect of duty. The problem with the new court-martial, headed by Colonel Enoch Poor, was that just about every officer on the court absolutely hated Arnold and was friends with Hazen. The court refused even to hear testimony from the officer whom Arnold had ordered to drop off the property to Hazen, and who was pretty much the only witness who could testify to Hazen's refusal to obey Arnold's orders to take possession of the property. They claimed the witness was an interested party, which, so what? Lots of witnesses have some interest in a case that is in favor of one side or the other. But the court-martial did not even say what that interest was. The court also refused to give Arnold adequate time to track down other witnesses to the events in question. Instead, the court unanimously found in favor of Hazen and acquitted him. This caused Arnold to lodge a protest with the court, suggesting that the court had erred in its decision not to hear the critical testimony and in its finding. He demanded that the entire proceedings be sent to the Continental Congress for a final decision. Now, the court could have just walked away with its acquittal of Hazen and let Arnold have his temper tantrum. But remember, the officers on this court hated Arnold and figured they could use the power of the court against him by demanding that he apologize for insulting the integrity of the court-martial. Of course, Arnold refused to apologize for what he saw as simply calling them out on their bias and improper procedures. Not only did he refuse to apologize, he made clear that he would be happy to face any of them in a duel if they would like the satisfaction. This all resulted in a flurry of letters and petitions to General Gates, the court insisting that General Arnold face contempt charges, and General Arnold demanding that the kangaroo court be dissolved and have his charges against Hazen sent to Congress. Now, Gates must have just shaken his head in disbelief when he received all this paperwork. The British Army was on the brink of attacking down Lake Champlain and destroying what remained of the Continental Force. Meanwhile, his top field officer is whining about a biased court-martial and the court wants him to lock up the top general for insulting their honor. Gates tried to dispose of the matter as best he could. He approved of the court's acquittal of Hazen, and he also made clear he was not going to let them pursue charges against Arnold. They had already wasted several weeks on this issue when they should be preparing to defend against an attack. We're not locking up our best field officer because someone thinks he insulted their honor. Gates sent the records of all of this to Congress, but for now, guys, let's focus on the enemy and not on each other. With the court-martial arguments behind him in August, Arnold could resume his command of the fleet on Lake Champlain. Except he couldn't. Arnold faced another challenge. While he was in Canada, General Schuyler had appointed Jacobus Wincoop commander of the fleet on Lake Champlain. When Arnold started giving orders, Wincoop sent him a note saying he was still in command of the fleet, and why was Arnold issuing orders to move his ships around? Arnold sent a rather snippy note back to Wincoop, letting him know that Schuyler had returned Arnold to command of the fleet. Wincoop ignored that and continued to assume command. 
he countermanded Arnold's orders and issued more of his own. Arnold then sent a note to General Gates about the problem and vented his frustration about, once again, no one seemed to respect the chain of command. Gates used this as an opportunity to bash Schuyler by ordering Schuyler's appointed commander, Wincoop, to be arrested and imprisoned for his refusal to cede command to Arnold. Uh, once Arnold sent off Wincoop in chains, he softened his view and did not seek to go through with a court-martial. Instead, he recommended that Wincoop be allowed to leave the theater and plead his case to Congress in Philadelphia. I suspect this softening was to prevent a pissing contest between Schuyler and Gates from blowing up everything. In any event, once again, General Arnold now had undisputed command of the fleet on Lake Champlain. Arnold would have nearly another two months before General Carleton was ready to unleash the British fleet on Lake Champlain. So we'll get to that fight a few weeks from now. Next week, we're going to return to New York, where General Howe is finally ready to end his pause and will begin his assault on Manhattan Island. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thank you for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. I want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the air. His site is colonialradio.com. Mark produces audio presentations on a wide variety of topics. My favorites, of course, are the historical fiction. I've mentioned the Ticonderoga series before, which is set during the French and Indian War, and follows many of the same events that I covered in the first few episodes of this podcast. It also ties in with today's episode, since we found ourselves back at Fort Ticonderoga again today. Unlike most podcasts, Mark's stories employ professional voice actors and use sound effects to help make the story come to life. It's most similar to old-time radio stories before the era of television. If you have an Audible account, you can get the episodes there. You can also download them on iTunes or buy the CDs on Amazon. If you want to check out the full library that's available and download some free samples, go to their website at colonialradio.com. I've also added a link on my website, amrevpodcast.com. So this week I talked about many of the disputes in both armies that were contesting for upstate New York. British generals Clinton and Burgoyne had 
a pretty terrible relationship and one that we'll see gets worse over time and also which impacts many junior officers. On the American side, Generals Schuyler and Gates show their pretty terrible relationship, which also gets worse over time and impacts many junior officers. The disputes between General Arnold and just about every other officer reaches a boiling point as well. If Arnold had not been such a great combat officer, I think just about everyone would have been happy to see him go. As we'll see in a few weeks, though, when Arnold takes his fleet into battle, his combat leadership and daring more than make up for his inability to work and play well with others. And of course, this is still years before he would finally betray everything and essentially justify every horrible thing his enemies said about him. But in mid to late 1776, Arnold continued to prove himself critical to the cause. Despite being an army officer, he would prove himself a great naval commander as well. And this, of course, brings me to today's book recommendation, Benedict Arnold's Navy by James L. Nelson. This book focuses on the fleet that General Arnold built on Lake Champlain and which he will soon take into battle. You may recall I recommended another book by Nelson a few months ago. He also wrote Washington's Secret Navy, which discussed the informal fleet that General Washington built before Congress got around to authorizing an official Continental Navy. Arnold's Navy is a second incidence where the Continental Army built and fought a naval fleet without any involvement of the Continental Navy. Nelson's book covers the entire upstate New York and Canada campaigns, beginning with the capture of Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, something I discussed way back in episode 59, and goes through the Saratoga Offensive, something I won't cover until sometime next year. Even though it covers about two and a half years of the war, it does focus just on this one theater. The fight of the Northern Army was critical to the overall war, but tends to get less noticed by historians. This book tells that story well and as its main focus. So if you're interested in reading more about that, check out Benedict Arnold's Navy by James Nelson. For my online recommendation this week, I'm going to recommend another podcast. A few weeks ago, I recommended the Journal of the American Revolution website as a good resource for articles. The Journal recently started its own podcast, where Brady Kreitzer interviews authors and other experts on the American Revolution. The podcast is called Dispatches. You can subscribe to it for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can also learn more details at the Journal of the American Revolution website, allthingsliberty.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.